Welcome to the book club where the size is just right, the books aren't too long, and you never need to host. That's our job. We bring best-selling and award-winning writers of every genre to Twin Cities metro area libraries to share their stories, discuss their work, and answer those burning questions you've always wanted to ask your favorite authors. This is a book club where we don't have to argue about what the author meant. They can tell us. The book club that doesn't require a clean house or wine and cheese. And in this book club, if you haven't read the book, it's all right. Although, we hope you'll be inspired to pick it up next time you're in the library. I'm your host, Slade Kemet, and you can consider the book club rewritten, because this is Club Book. This season consists of both in-person library events as well as virtual facilitated author discussions by some really great guest hosts. That will include a Q&A section with questions submitted by our virtual audience. So with that, I will turn it over to our host for this evening's event. Enjoy. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Cull Book with Tracy K. Smith. My name is Michael Cleaver Diggs. I'm a St. Paul-based poet, essayist, and arts educator. Before I introduce tonight's guest properly, allow me a moment to tell you a bit more about the unique series that is bringing her to us. Club Book is a program of MELSA, the Metropolitan Library Service Agency, and it's made possible through Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund and coordinated by Library Strategies, part of the Friends of the St. Paul Public Library. Anoka County Library is a co-organizer of this evening's talk. Thanks also to partnering bookseller Red Balloon Bookshop. Now for our featured event. Tracy K. Smith has published five well-received poetry collections to date and served as the 22nd Poet Laureate of the United States from 2017 to 2019. Her sophomore release, Doyle Day, received the coveted James Laughlin Award from the Academy of American Poets. Smith cemented her growing reputation with Life on Mars, a work which, as Publishers Weekly put it, blends pop culture, history, elegy, anecdote, and social political commentary to illustrate the weirdness of contemporary living. It won the 2012 Pulitzer Prize in Poetry. Smith branched into memoir in 2015 with the National Book Award finalist, Ordinary Light. Her latest project, To Free the Captives, A Plea for the American Soul, based on scholarship and the author's own experiences and earnest soul-searching. Smith's latest etches a portrait of where we find ourselves as a society 400 years into the American experiment and offers a blueprint for fulfilling our duties to each other and to the future. It debuted last Tuesday, November 7th. After a short talk and some initial questions from me, we'll have time for audience Q&A. Simply drop your questions in the comments thread here on Facebook, and our tech manager will route them to me, and I'll share them with Tracy. You can also send a message to Club Book through Facebook Messenger or by email, where you'll find us at clubbookmn at gmail.com. And with that, it is my pleasure and honor to introduce Tracy K. Smith. Hi, Tracy. Hi, Michael. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be together. Me too. Conversation. Great to see you. Great to see you. Um, 
before I invite you to read a little bit from the book, I just wanted to say, in addition to being delighted to visit with you, um, and, and really for our audience uh, listening in, but also to you, that the book is beautiful. Uh, it's resonant and thoughtful. It's important. I thought it was poetic. It's ekphrastic at times. I feel like you're in conversation with images and photos and um, and it's a very personal and kind of candid examination of your life, your family's life, and through that, um, American life. And as you as you say, the American imagination. And I felt it was an essential read uh, for this perilous time. And I'm so grateful that you took a time to kind of gather all those ideas together into what is a really wonderful, wonderful book. Oh, thank you so much. You know, I'm such a huge admirer of your work. And so uh, that means the world to hear that. Thank you. you. Um, Start off by sharing a little bit from the book with us. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, This is a book that moves through um, regions of my family history uh, and thinking about the America that we've inherited um, the America that many uh, quiet lives have served to steward and um, and seek to better. And um, a large part of it is also looking with honesty at my own life and my own um, experience of living inside what I think of as the collective American imagination, um, what that means, what how it informs our view of one another and even of ourselves. Um, I thought I would read a passage from the middle of the book, um, from the time when my my young sons were born. Um, they were born uh, premature, spent some time in the neonatal intensive care unit, and it happened to be during uh, the same period when the George Zimmerman trial was happening. And I would go in to visit them, and I would be, uh, you know, kind of like accompanied or confronted by... Um, images uh, from that, uh, those deliberations, and also images of of Trayvon Martin at different uh, stages of his childhood. Our twin sons are born into the world eight weeks premature. They will not be released from the neonatal intensive care unit for two and a half weeks. During their stay, a Florida jury acquits neighborhood vigilante George Zimmerman of second degree murder for shooting Trayvon Martin, an unarmed 17-year-old child, a black child in a black hoodie. He could have been my brother's decades ago, or my father as a young man wandering Detroit. Blood or not, history instructs me to claim Trayvon Martin as kin. My postpartum heart herds him in. The news of the decision does not come as a great surprise not because it is correct, but because America has had centuries to perfect the discounting of black lives. This jury, like others, has swept an age-old suspicion and an age-old doubt into a mound and heaped it onto their scale. America's streets and schools and cafes and boutiques are filled with doubt's debris, which tips the scale on occasions like these. In photos from his unspent childhood, 
Trayvon Martin's beautiful face beams toward the camera. In one image, he stands in a red Hollister t-shirt, arms loose at his sides, held safely in a familiar gaze. In another, he's at aviation camp, standing in profile, looking up from a page of text, a diagram, perhaps, of an object in flight. As a mother, I believe I can decipher some of the baby that lingers still visibly in him, something vulnerable that has not yet been pulled taut. He smiles, teeth parted, or else he has been caught on the cusp of speech. The theft of this young life, the needless and groundless, but nevertheless familiar loss, adds yet more heft to the understanding that my own tiny boys are born fighting for their lives. Atticus arrives first. I wake up to a puddle in the bed, sheets, blankets, everything wet. No labor cramps, no quickening, but my body has woken itself with this bout of something like weeping. After the birth, the baby is shown to me for just a moment. I'm allowed to hold him briefly to my chest, like a tiny comet, the scrawny wriggling legs, warm vernix still slicking his skin. But there is some mention of his breathing, his lungs too young. Quickly, he is lifted away. Sterling is more hesitant. He has yet to descend. My doctor reaches in. I watch at first as if he is at work in an architecture that is not me. His arm disappears up, up. I had no idea my womb was so tall to puncture the sack. Has it really been two days of admitting and trying to forestall and then finally accepting the inevitability and then the necessity of this too early delivery? I am ready and I am not ready. For months, I've been lurching toward the sight of them, toward the dream of their faces and what they bear. Did one of them feel the same? They could have stayed where they were, but they are here, squinting, hands fisted tight, shoulders raised, legs pedaling against the sudden air, the delivery room light. But it is too soon. Again, the doctor questions the lungs, their viability. It falls to my husband to race after the nurse as the second new son is ushered away. Photos of older graduates from the NICU line the walls at check-in. Kids whose healthy faces and broad smiles are a daily consolation. There is even an eight by 10 of a husky teenager in a high school commencement cap and gown. My husband and I claim the strength the thriving of these children for our own sons, the smiling faces that walk us back from fear intervene upon the daily jag of tears. But we can't let down our guard. We refuse to, because right here in the waiting room where the TV stays on with the volume turned down, here with us in our coming and going, there is also often another face, which the camera cuts to again and again throughout the trial. He is beaming towards some earlier camera's lens, or he is peering out from under the drape of a sweatshirt's cowl. The nurses seem to understand this too. They are black women and Filipinas, quiet, gentle, steady as bedrock. One 
in the delivery room had even been named Nurse Rock. They keep the TV turned to the Zimmerman trial. They remain vigilant in their care. Every life they profess with their actions is a matter of many lives. Parents whose daughter fits at first into the father's palm. A new mother so young, it seems she doesn't know to fear. All are graced by the saints of this place, who are tireless, who whisper without inviting despair, who teach us to lift, hold, and handle our babies as if they will be our babies forever. They tell us to go home, to sleep, to rest, to recover for the joy and labor ahead. It is a black hospital in what was once a black neighborhood. The white mothers who live here give birth elsewhere. So I don't feel gawked at as my breasts struggle to make milk. So there is no question as to why I cry in the waiting room, eyeing the trial. Thank you so much, Tracy. And that leads to a vivid image of your son seeing you carrying some of that grief um, and the weight of all that the fight is, is such an apt way to describe it. Um, as I was reading the book, I, I was thinking of it and I think of our time today. Um, I was just thinking about the book as a series of conversations and I'd kind of like to talk to you about three of them. Okay. I feel like you're in conversation with your parents, um, both when they were alive and after they passed on. Mm-hmm. Um, your mother, well, I'm going to start with your dad, your, your, their wisdom from when they were alive, both in what they say to you and in, I'm smiling because there's this moment where it becomes apparent that you're heading toward poetry and your father realizes that too. And I'll just say there's been a similar moment, uh, at my house too. And I, when I read that, I laughed and I'm, I'm smiling about it now, but you have, access to your parents' wisdom and ideas, and also a great deal of opportunity to learn from how they lived their lives when they were alive. After they died, your father kind of appears to you as a presence, but also in the form of letters that he left behind. There's one that begins kids that just, oh, I just felt so happy and I feel almost weird saying it, but proud uh, Mm -hmm. with that letter. Your mother appears to you directly, which takes me back to a reading you gave in Red Wing, Minnesota at the Anderson Center in 2020. And you were talking about, um, I think you were relatively early in meditation as a practice at that point. Mm -hmm. And you were having real conversations and visitations your mom gives you guidance on a common question that we have confront as Amer- in, in American families uh, at the beginning of the book. But I just wondered if you could talk a little bit about how your parents, and I think at one point you talk about the other people who nudge and guided you during the, the project of the book, how, how those conversations helped shape this project. I feel like, um, We have been startled or embarrassed into closing down our receptivity to life beyond the material. 
um, I know for myself, when I used to talk about what I was doing as a writer, I would say I'm listening beyond myself, but I would also sort of sort cocoon that in um, the notion of my own unconscious mind, which knows more than I know, because that feels um, credible in a way. But I know I've always also been hoping for guidance that's not coming from me and that's not even coming from the ongoing human. And the desperation, frankly, of the grief, uncertainty, um, the difficult clarities of 2020 led me to a place where I couldn't tell myself I was trying to come to my own aid. You know, not even my own unconscious mind was equipped to console me through what felt like um, a, 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 an abrupt darkening of our, of our, of our culture. Um, and so I started praying, but not feeling like it was enough to send out please and hear nothing back or trust that maybe an answer would come in some form. I wanted someone to sit down with me, to surround me and tell me what it had been like for them what I was in the process of moving through and how I might survive in spirit and body. And so I started to ask, is there anyone here who can speak to me? Is there anyone here who has anything to share? And I think that's it. I think it's simply the desire to um, acknowledge that there is presence and that it's needed. And, and it became so easy I, like you said, those poems, the first um, several poems that emerged from that period, which are now in the riot section of such color, are dialogue. It's call and response, and it's not a metaphor. It's mm. not a formal device. Um, and so uh, in writing this book, although I wasn't feeling the same sense of active fright, I was feeling like I wanted help finding a path through all of the debris all of the um, archival presence and absence that I was, you know, in search of and coming up against. And um, it happened, you know, I felt like nudge to take what might have seemed like um, procrastinating measures. You know, I remember at once saying, I think there's something that has to do with cowboys that's that I need to draw into this. And suddenly, after I had kind of reacquainted myself with some of the figures that my father had, you know, loved uh, growing up. Um, I realized a scene from my own life, meeting some cowboys in my family and, and my, you know, my uncle's community and learning from them what uh, freedom uh, meant and how it, it was connected always to a sense of willing obligation, willing duty. And these little um, detours, I think, added a concrete sense of memory and um, archival presence that um, gave me a sense of the shape of freedom in the Black imagination as it's been through the generations. And that also shed light on what freedom has looked like in the wider American imagination, which I think is a default white space that we all are initiated into. Right. I also feel like you're in conversation with yourself in the book, uh, your younger self, uh, yourself in California, in Sunflower, Arkansas, in Mexico, in New Jersey, uh, 
I and and also with your earlier writing, you make reference to "My God, It's Full of Stars," uh, mm-hmm. the poem about the Hubble telescope. I felt like Wade in the Water was present in moments uh, in the book, and your poem "Declaration," which is a brilliant erasure of the Declaration of a Pin, uh, of Independence, also kind of shows up. So, I feel like you're in conversation with yourself at younger moment moments, sometimes directly. Yeah, um, and also with your writing. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit about both, about um, looking back at, at younger you and and also continuing conversations that were present in, in some of the things that you've written prior to mm-hmm. uh, this beautiful book. Well, in looking back at some of the poems uh, or, you know, other bits of writing, I think that I know actually that they taught me so much. You know, I think of poetry as a form of research. I think that a poem begins with a question and it urges me to to move toward, you know, some sort of knowledge um, that can push me to discover something on the other side of that question. And so poems like Declaration or Wait in the Water that opened up tenets that I hold now, um, sort of started echoing back within this work almost as like the um the bedrock of certain ideas certain notions um and the book allowed me to move forward or laterally from there and gather up a little bit more um perspective on how questions of freedom or ritual um the survival the different forms of improvisation or what I think of as counter logics that have facilitated black survival and thriving like the ring shout, um, how those things might begin to be in dialogue with my, my current questions about our predicament. Um, the younger self was a little bit different. I spent a lot of time thinking about, um, the terms of freedom that we ascend to and developing a sense that they're insufficient. And it only felt honest to me to move into spaces where I have, I now understand myself to have been complicit with the terms, the very terms that I'm challenging. And so I wanted to, I wanted to say, I think I can do this. I think I can, I can acknowledge and maybe even learn something from these patterns that I, um, I recognize my complicity in. Um, and maybe imagine that a reader could be emboldened to do the same thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, because ultimately what I think it will require for us to adjust our habitual mode of regard across lines of difference is to change our relationship to the things, our memories, to recognize what they serve, what they hold, and what they impede. And I wanted to practice that with a reader and say, um, this is something for all of us to, to begin to practice. Um, Before I ask about the last conversation, I wanna make sure that the audience is with us on a concept that you illuminate fairly early in the book, um, where you say that you are not free you are freed. And that distinction <clears throat> I later learned is, is connected to an idea that I think 
originated or was amplified by W.E.B. Du Bois, but I wondered if you could talk just a little bit about the distinction between the free and the freed. Mm -hmm, absolutely. Um, so, you know, I, in thinking through my own family's experience of, you know, war and citizenship and segregation, my dad's um, experiences in the military, um, it became clear to me that we're sorted into different categories. As much as we talk about freedom and as much as those of us who want to um, think about progress um, across racial lines are as much as we're told, oh, come on, slavery was centuries ago. We've got to kind of get back to the present. Um, there's a lot that I don't think we have been invited to acknowledge consciously about how freedom operates differently depending on who you are. So the terms I bring to it, and you're right, they're definitely informed by Du Bois and, and others, um, are that those in this country who we as assume to be free are people who appear to descend from histories of power, ownership, people um, whose um, choices have been, at least in part or in large part, um, made to act upon others, you know, enslavement or forced migration or, or patterns in, in some of these um, these traditions. And um, the sort of quiet um, fallacy of that is that this freedom is inherent in their very beings. It's something that is an um, a manifestation of innate worth. Um, it's inviolable, it's inseparable from, from their selfhood or their citizenship. Um, and yet there are others of us who are not free, but rather freed, meaning we descend from histories of violence, subjugation, enslavement. We are the ones who, uh, who have been acted upon historically by those who, um, who we've agreed to imagine are and have always been free. Um, I don't like these terms. I don't like this um, hierarchy. I think it's one of many, many hierarchies um, that kind of... Um, undergird our, our civic and our, our, you know, every facet of our lives in, in this country. Um, and I think that it also invites a kind of um, unnecessary and dis destructive labor to be performed, whereby we are either trying to ascend, which means wriggling up ever higher on these hierarchies and leveraging what we can to become or claim or seize a little bit more privilege or freedom or, or power, or we are expending energy and emotions to put and hold others in their place so that our freedom is not encroached upon um, right. by those who, who are less free. And I think it's, um, you know, it's, it's a, a competition that exhausts us when we could very well be building uh, things together. Right. Which leads so well into my last conversation um, which is, I, I feel like you're also in conversation with America. Obviously, there are a lot of other conversations in the book that I wanted to highlight. I'm under a strict time limit. So honoring that, I'll go to the third one, which is a conversation with America. And um, one of the feelings that I had as I read the book, and this is a, a feeling that I have had before, but it's rare, is that I really wish... I had the power to make everyone in the country read it, not as a choice. I feel about your book. 
not as a chore, just as a, you know, like I, I feel like it would advance so much. Um, you describe the book as a plea, straight up. It's right on the cover. And as you make your appeal, you shared an idea that Tracy, I got to be honest with you, I brushed up against it first. I was just like a little reluctant to embrace it. But as I spent time with it, I ate. Uh, and there's one word in 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 the in the part that I'm talking about that really kind of slowed me down. And you'll know which one it is. And, and I'll tell you, I caught up with you. Um, but there's a part of the book where you say, uh, I'm reading from page 80, which is the end of the chapter that's called The Free and the Freed. You who believe yourselves free, you write, who have perhaps been reading this with a mix of curiosity, skepticism, and pity. What would you do if I were to tell you we are, all of us, you and me, the free and the freed, equally captive in our collective enterprise? And I paused it equally, shocker. <clears throat> but then I thought about it. The circumstances of our captivity are different and unique. But we're all equally captive. Mm -hmm. A lot of what you're doing in this book is having a conversation with America. And that shows up in a variety of ways. Um, but I wanted to just in this kind of conversational part of the questions with you just talking about that plea, um, what drove you to the assembly of the book and all the different ways that you allow us to understand the circumstances of our captivity and led you to that realization, which to me is not an easy one to embrace, but is an important one to embrace. Well, I think about, you know, Yes, I'm I'm trying to make a case for what this thing is that is the American imagination. But if you just think about the private, the individual imagination, um, we live in a time and a place where we're given so many terms that serve to diminish our ability to frame and to build and imagine on our own. I think it comes through language. It certainly comes through all of the um, the images that we're kind of bombarded with that are dull us, that um, wet appetites that are, you know, small, that are futile or that are um, self-driven. Um, and I feel like our ability to see, to want, to remember, to care, to even want to connect um, I feel like it it's being dimmed where we're, um, we are becoming smaller in in spirit and the imagination is the I guess like the bullseye for that that attack. It makes us you know better yeah. consumers. It makes us easy to corral because we can you know our buttons can be pushed more easily when we all have buttons. Um, and so, um, that's one site of captivity, I think. Um, and sometimes I think that poetry is one thing that convinces me how, how effective that captivity is because it's, 
often that my conversations about poetry with people who believe they dislike the form or are afraid of the form, um, when we persist a little bit, they they remember how large and and fearless and creative and imaginative they actually are, and they draw me into a conversation that's you know that's beautiful that's um, singular and that is you know transforms my own view of language of poems I love poems I might have even offered you know and um, I think I, I yeah so so that's that's one degree. Um, but I also, I also feel that um, the appetite for power that we've been persuaded to imagine freedom is or leads to is another thing that that limits our capacity to to think um, in more original and um, and enlarging terms because we're seeking to claim hoard and defend something that is offered as freedom but isn't freedom i think that our mistaking freedom for power creates a lot of fear um and i think that might be what makes conversations about racial difference inequality uh, equity really hard for some people to have um, that's right one of the things that I think you share in the book that's really important, um, we learn a lot about your parents' lives. Um, for me, and, and I, I, you present them fully and well, they are human people and um, they face challenges and setbacks and, and all of those things. And they kind of, they did everything right. Mm -hmm. um, and the circumstances of their lives were difficult. And I had a similar reaction to some of the things that you shared as well, Tracy. Um, we start our conversation tonight by sharing your bio and people who are joining us here that you've won a Pulitzer Prize, that you were the poet laureate of the United States. They might know that you are a professor at one of the high, most highly regarded institutions learning institutions in the entire world. Um, and from that, we might make these assumptions that um, you are doing everything right and the circumstances of your life will bear that out. Um, but there are moments in the book where you encounter what I will describe for convenience sake here as indignities. Mm -hmm. And um, you're very gracious about it in the book, but I think we might also see moments of disrespect that show up in those settings. And part of what emerges is that um, your your parents sacrificed so much so that their five children would have uh, a life that was not as difficult as theirs. And I can say for myself, my life is not as difficult as my parents' lives were or their parents. And, um, it's hard not to use this moment also to talk about the fact that there is no resiliency against those indignities. Uh, when you walk uh, into an archive, a person might recognize you as a professor or they might not. Um, they might know that you've won a prestigious award or they might not. Um, 
and they might be responding to you because of your race or because of the size of your party or in any, any number of things. But in a society such as ours, um, as we think about how the ways that we're all captive, it's difficult not to also account for the very real possibility that what's driving concern and disrespect and decisions is race, racism. Mm -hmm. um, In some ways, I think it's like our training as Americans, <laughs> that right. notion of doubts, debris, like we're taught. Um, I say we, because I'm, I live here. It's a lesson that's been directed at all of us. And many of us have recognized the need to turn from that or to call it out, but it's, it's, it's ambient matter. Um, and, and it takes a, an active decision and an ongoing decision to listen in a different way, to look and expect in a different way. I thought a lot about a Barbara Jordan quote. I think she was talking about women specifically, but um, she was talking about how our nation just does not use 50% of its kinetic energy mm -hmm. uh, because we're so locked into these approaches and systems that won't allow us to see things differently. And there were several moments in the book where I'm like, this is what we lose. We. Yeah. Um, the capital we, uh, because we're too busy, kind of locked into uh, ways that don't serve really any of us. Yeah. It feels like a time to start thinking and talking about this more because we're in a moment where so many of the institutions that we've long trusted to solve things for us or to create the mechanism by which we can, you know, register our wishes and activate the changes um, that that are are needed. Um, they're not functioning in the ways that they always seemed to. Right. If they did, um, right. they're vulnerable. They're teetering. Um, the values by which they operate have suddenly changed. Um, they're riddled with contradiction. And it feels like a time to recalibrate our relationship to these institutions and to think, what are the other institutions that have sustained communities of people over time? Maybe they're not the most august um, and celebrated uh, institutions um, in our culture, but the intimate, homespun, improvisatory ones. You know, I think I ask a question like, is, um, is memory an institution? is love an institution. And I wonder if um, if those are sites by which we might begin to realize change might be more possible. Yeah, uh, thank you for that. So I'm gonna open the conversation up a little bit. We had some questions come in advance. I also see that there are some questions in the chat. I'll start off with a question that was submitted in advance. Uh, it reads, I am a librarian of color and enjoyed Tracy's recent interview with American Libraries Magazine. Could she elaborate on violence of the archive, the violence of the archive concept she named, which plays such a role in the marginalization of already marginalized communities? Oh, sure. I think that um, it would be really nice to have Sadia Hartman talk to us about, you know, the archive and the silences and the forms of erasure and misapprehension that they give way to if unless we are working to listen differently and more effectively, because that's the person who's really taught me to think about um, these documents and what they do and don't reflect about who we are, who we have always been um, as a nation and as a people. 
But um, when I invoke that term, I'm just thinking about the ways that Black lives have been codified, diminished, and allowed to languish in what are simply gaps in paperwork in, in the archive or the preponderance of documented perspectives that seek to diminish um, Black humanity um, as a, a, a wing of the campaign to justify, you know, enslavement and segregation. So this fault, these false logics of inequality. Um, but there's more. Um, there is a story that is told across lives, even in um, by way of, of fragments. Uh, when I was looking even for evidence of my own family, I found, you know, war records, census records, um, a letter that a neighbor in my grandparents' community wrote to the governor of Alabama during the Great Depression, making a case for how differently um, their experience as Black people um, un was unfolding than, than that of whites and, and nearby communities. And that tells me that we were present, we were um, seeking to participate, and when that letter was met with the coldest, mutest, least useful um, institutional response, I saw what this family did. And they, you know, the the elders moved in with the young ones. Um, they took different jobs and they made do. And I think that they strengthened one another in 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 improvising um, and in saying, well, we, our love, our care our willingness and maybe even our ability to forgive is going to be um, the foundation for our keeping going. Um, and I think that when we look at the archive with an interest in continuity and with an understanding of, of who we have been to one another, we find so much evidence of love and grace <laughs> I feel like these are hallmarks of Black experience in this country, and there are capacities by which I think it is possible to um, absorb a setback, find a way to build one another back up, and keep going and keep contributing, and, and also keep making a case that there's more we're capable of as a nation. And I feel like that's um, that's one story that I've become really attuned to in, in thinking through even just personal um, and familial history um, through archival sources. That segues so beautifully into a question that's in the chat. Um, a, a viewer has asked, how do you find the strength and courage to speak so boldly and earnestly in such an oppositional and stark world? Silence hurts more. It allows the notion that attack is imminent to heighten the sense of isolation and vulnerability. Um, but I don't know, speaking, writing, thinking with others and toward others um, invites community. It invites corroboration. It invites the you know awareness that there are other lives who might have different perspectives and might be, um, I don't know, emboldened to to speak back or to speak with. Um, 
And we come from, I say we, I'm talking about the community of Blackness over the centuries in this country. We come from vocal and um, eager to be useful communities. You know, we, we are people that have used language to transform the sense of the possible to show ourselves and also our nation who and what we're capable of being and who and what we 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 truly are. And so I want to I want to earn a place in that tradition by, you know, by using my voice um in harmony or in concert with those other voices which are not gone, you know, which continue to sound and continue to um shed new light even after all this time. Can I share my reaction as a reader? Um I also feel, and 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 I should I should say I I got the book on Tuesday. Like I went to my independent book. I had a a PDF advance in advance, but I also got a copy at my bookseller on Tuesday. And listen, I was prepping for our conversation tonight, and so I was with you in audiobook and on the pages, um, double timing it in that way. And I would really recommend to to readers. And I, I I'm not kidding. If, if there are, I got a list of books where you should read it and listen to the audiobook, uh, The Bluest Eye, Born a Crime, Heavy, and To Free the Captives. Those are my four. Because you, uh, on the page, um, you are speaking truthfully about the experiences of your life and of your parents' lives and how you feel about those things. Um, and you also have these moments of direct address where you acknowledge that people might be surprised. Uh, they might find this difficult or uncomfortable, but in in the way that you frame it, um, I think on the page, but also your voice uh, in the audiobook, um, there's such a desire for closeness. The entire project is meant to allow us to overcome. There cannot be any reconciliation without truth. Um, I, I I would refer people also to the coda of the book, which I'm not I'm not gonna no spoilers, but there's just these real opportunities for us to learn, to see it differently, to inhabit other perspectives, um, and I feel that you have a particular gift for sharing, um, not only things that happen to you, but also of yourself in a way that makes the project human and relatable, accessible. And um, I would also say, as the reader did, earnest. Um, and I think that that's one part of what's missing in a culture where we have a tendency to um, take a more oppositional stance sometimes. Um, and, and this is also a case for the book where we have time for narratives to proceed and for the complexities to come forward. Um, but within that, uh, your voice, um, your grace, you make very, you don't make assumptions, you share possibilities and, but also say, this is what happened. This is the truth of what happened. And I think that that really, um, allows people to come with you. Thank you so much. Uh, Here's a question. Where do you find joy in your writing process as you reflect and converse with your world and the world outside of past and present? Mm. Well, I feel like the discoveries and the revelations in writing 
are some of my greatest joys in life. It allows me to be deep, deep, deeply needy. <laughs> Say, I'm searching, this doesn't make sense or this hurts. What can I, what can I move toward that will shed better light that will shed some useful light um, and allow me to, to, you know, move forward with a different sense of, of the, the real or the possible, even, you know, there are things that I discovered about my, my family and my dad, his, his father, um, that were really, that made me very sad that, that hurt me to, um, imagine that, oh, I, I couldn't protect them. Even now that I'm older than they were at these different pivotal moments in their lives, there's, there's no way I could, can protect them in the way that I wish, wish I could. And that's a pain but it leads to a different kind of resourcefulness of thought and memory. And ultimately to me, that feels enlarging. And I think that the other thing that makes me feel joy is that I really do believe that those lives who are not with us in material form are with us and they're ongoing. Um, my ancestors are not suffering now in the ways that they, they did in, in, in parts of their lives. And they have a largeness of perspective that allows them to be useful, encouraging, even, you know, even funny <laughs> um, now when I need that. And it, I, I, I really almost encourage or challenge those of us who are afraid to tip into the weight and the freight of our history to think about these lives as not stuck where they once were um, and not even bound by the certainties that they perhaps held in life. Um, and to me, that's been really um, exhilarating. It's, it's literally, I think, kept me from despair to imagine that ancestors I, whose names I don't and may never know understand something about where we're going and are willing to be helpful to me as I confront the challenges um, of our time and the ones and the ones on the horizon. Um, that's a really different sense of the of the cosmology that we belong to, but without it. The cosmology we belong to is riddled with false tribalisms, with power grabs, with didacticism and, and inflexibility or virtue signaling in two-dimensional online life. And that's no consolation. And a form of captivity, as you point out. Mm -hmm. We have a couple of questions that are kind of related to research. Uh, and one of them, basically, it's like, what was your favorite or most surprising discovery as part of your research for this book? Oh, that's a good question and a hard one. Because I wasn't, I don't feel like I was doing scholarly research. I was feeling myself um, re and better acquainted with what I think of as a colloquial history, the history that we grow up in and beside and receiving um, from the voices and sources um, in our midst. Um, I think I talked a little bit about Black Cowboys in the beginning, but that was a detour that I just, that filled my heart. And that's a moment where I feel like maybe it was my dad saying, yeah. um, you know, let's, let's go in this direction. 
don't worry, it'll be useful. Um, but thinking that there are these black men who had been born into enslavement, who after emancipation found jobs, at, not as cow hands or ranch hands, but you know, like lower totem pole, like cowboy um, physicians and um, felt themselves embracing a kind of responsibility um understanding that freedom is not disappearing which is what the myth of the cowboy is like riding off into a sunset where the only duty is to oneself but rather the joy in saying what i'm capable of doing i will do for myself and others um because these are these are possibilities that have long been withheld so the notion of um of of Americanness, which you know wants to claim the cowboy as its as its central ethos um to me it's tempered greatly by the fact that black lives um, have given shape um to that to that to those terms of, of possibility freedom and you know even manhood or selfhood if you will yeah um, oh I love that I have one writerly question uh as I was thinking about the book um there's this moment where you're on a plantation and you are visited by a woman who comes to your room and you take care to say that um this is not the same visitor that would greet you when you're sitting on your adirondack chair in new jersey underneath a a large tree this is a work of your imagination Mm -hmm. and i was just thinking about uh a nonfiction project that accommodates um, visitations that not all of us can experience, dreams that also show up quite a lot. Um, dreams are real things that we can take down and um, and share in that particular way, but also works of our imagination that, in some ways, I think in the in the form of this figure, are connected to our dreams and also to. Uh, visitations that might come to us from those who have passed beyond a bodily form. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about including that moment of imagination in a nonfiction book. Yeah. Um, I felt like I needed, um, I needed a form of levity in that space where I was on alert, um, feeling like there would definitely be moments where I would feel a stark resistance to the version of nostalgia that I was participating in by dint of being a lodger at a a plantation. Um, There were moments when it felt like levity was the only thing that would relieve the resentment of certain statements, assumptions, and um, depictions that um, characterize the that w- region of, you know, the nostalgia industry in this country, or the you know what we've decided is is hospitality, um, the violence that it that it um, seeks to negate or erase or deny, and so this figment, this woman, young, you know, let's say she was my age, but she was uh, an antebellum figure. I needed to say girl, are you serious? (laughs) And I needed her to be at ease and within the dynamic and 
sort of need me to get with the program and understand. Um, and that, that just felt helpful. It made me feel like all of those feelings that I was warring that were warring in me didn't mean that I was crazy. It meant that I, I was beginning to get something, you know? Yeah. Oh, I love that. A question in the chat is, uh, there's kind of two poetry questions. One is, do you feel poetry is able to have a significant impact on discourse with respect to captivity, given its relatively smaller readership? And and kind of related to that is, is there something more or different that you think American poets could be doing as part of a larger conversations um, on freedom or captivity? Well, I think American poets are doing a lot. I feel like contemporary American poetry is um, a site where history has taken on greater relevance and um, immediacy because poets are imagining themselves on the ground and in in periods where otherwise we have the mediation of um, hmm, mediation of a lot of archival silence and and um, subterfuge. I'm thinking about a book like Eve L. Ewing's uh, 1919, which thinks about the um, Chicago race riot in 1919, um, you know, during a, a time when there were many, many racially motivated riots that deliberately sought to undo and punish uh, thriving Black communities for, you know, for flourishing. Um, and so in that book, she brings us into the private daily interiority of people who were victims of that violence. Um, there's a poem in which she imagines, it's one of the last poems in the book, Emmett Till, as if he had survived and was shopping for fruit in a, in a corner market um, with the grace and tenderness that he ought to have lived to you know, at an older age. And she brings in beautiful metaphors for thinking about what's at stake with migration. Um, there's a poem called At the Summit in which what um, Black people did in migrating from the violence in the South to the sense of hope um, that, that seemed to await in the North, she likens it to climbing a mountain like Mount Everest and enduring these chilling and mortal um, environmental stakes and um, the small acts of care and um, and endurance that that made great great continuance possible. I think poets are um, are bringing so much visceral knowledge, so much um, understanding that history or for any kind of information enters us not only through this you know cognitive zone but through the body through the ear through our ability to um be drawn into a voice and a form of music so i think our poets are leading poets worldwide in this regard we just need to stop worrying um that poetry isn't for us right. and admitting that there's there's much there that um, we want and need and will recognize um, remind me if there was another layer of that question. Uh, so there was one component that was kind of connected to sales. The fact that poetry doesn't reach as wide an audience as 
fiction and nonfiction does. But I, I think you've spoken on that. Um, I also think poems reside in our pockets and in our hearts. Um, we carry them with us in other ways. And what a book, how many copies of book sells and how a poem has conversations out in the world are two different things, I think. I think you're right. Um, I meet a lot of students who whose experience with poetry um, has primarily been online um, videos, performance oh. videos of poets or poems that appear on different sites and become like totems or anthems for many. And I love that. I love that it means that they are aware of the, the, the voice of the poet. And I also am very excited to introduce them to books and the experience of spending an extended amount of time in a poet's vocabulary and their sense of, of language and experience, um, because that's another form of, uh, of encounter. Thank you for that. Tracy, we have reached the end of time. I wanted to close by just telling you one of the lines, and there are many that really resonated with me, comes toward the end of the book where you write that one way we persist is through one another. And there were so many things about that that spoke to me, both in terms of our interconnectedness to one another, but also in terms of our connection to the past, to those who came before us, to the people who are here with us now, and to the people who have not yet been born, but will be here someday um, through each other. And this is a captivating plea for the American soul. I'm grateful to you for writing it. Um, we are all grateful for to you for visiting with us here at Club Book. I got to tell you, we got a quiet little plan underway to make Minnesota like your second home. I've been enlisted as part of that. So uh, don't be surprised if we try to get together. Uh, okay, I'm game. <laughs> One of my favorite places. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure to be to speak with you tonight. Oh, likewise. And that's all the time we have for this evening. Thank you again, Tracy, for uh, making time for our conversation today. Thanks so much for being with us. Have a great night, everyone. Take care. That wraps up our Anoka County Library event with Tracy K. Smith. And that'll wrap up our fall 2023 club book season. Make sure to check back with us in January as we announce our winter 2024 season lineup with more great authors. Over 150 podcasts of our previous discussions can be found on our website and iTunes. So if you have a minute, check them out. Over the past 20 seasons, we've had some incredible writers speak about their work, their process, and their journey. Visit us online at clubbook.org for details on past and present seasons, sign up for our e-newsletter, check out our calendar, and so much more. Stay up to date with all of our events at our Clubbook Facebook page. If you're on Twitter, find us using the handle clubbookmn. And if you enjoy these free Clubbook events and podcasts, remember to share them with your friends. They just may too. Thanks again to all those who make Clubbook possible, including Melsa, Library Strategies, and Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Our sponsors include MinPost and Red Balloon Bookshop, where you can purchase all the books featured in Clubbook. 
Finally, a very special thank you to all the libraries hosting events this season. That's it for Club Book, the coolest club in town. We'll see you at the library.